join us. We have another exciting testimony video. I grew up in the church learning about Jesus using those awesome, amazing flannel graph boards in Sunday school. My family always went to church just on Sundays. That's just what we did. Sometimes I went more willingly than others. <laughs> and sometimes I didn't go maybe for the right reasons. When I was younger, it might have been because I wanted to show off a brand new pretty dress I just got. Years later, I'm sitting in this pew. I am surrounded by my family. I have my sister and her family. I've got my parents and I have my grandparents beside me. I grew up in that church. My grandfather has been a pastor emeritus for over 68 years. He was a minister in that church for 12 of those years. My mother lived in the church while he was a minister there during that time. My grandfather married my parents in this church. My grandfather married my husband and I in this church. My grandfather baptized me in this church. So here I am sitting in a pew that I've sat in for the last 30 years of my life, surrounded by my family with all this history around me. And I felt like something was missing. I talked to Jesus about it and I said, please help me understand what I should do about this. It was heavy on my heart. So I sat down with my husband and I told him and I said, I want to grow my faith, but in order to do that, I think we need to make a change. I think we need to make a change for myself as well as my family. And my awesome husband said, okay, let's do it. That's just who he is. <laughs> so there we are, Sunday morning. I'm asking Jesus to give me the strength to walk through those doors, to open my heart, and to have the courage to go to this new church. I put my hand in the door, I open the door, and it wasn't so scary after all. <laughs> Not only Freedom did you make myself feel welcome, but you made my family feel welcome. This past year at Freedom, I've wanted to do a Bible study, and I've never done a Bible study before ever. I looked up all the amazing opportunities and the options that you guys have, and I felt so overwhelmed, I closed my laptop and I walked away. <laughs> and so that night, I went to Jesus again, and I said, look, I want to have the intention to sign up for a Bible study. Help me to know what to do. So the next morning I wake up, I go to sit on my computer, and I have an email. And it's from Aaron inviting me to a Bible study. To which at that point I smiled and I laughed. I'm like, hey, I'm emailing Aaron back. Thank you. I'm like, gotcha. So glad I signed up. What an amazing group of women I got the privilege to meet. They had so much knowledge to give and to be able to support one another, not only in their faith life, but in their family life. And I'm so blessed I got the opportunity to meet them. On the last day of the Bible study, Aaron proposed a question. And the question was something like this. How has your relationship with Jesus changed you throughout this time? Growing up, I knew Jesus loved me. I know that. That is something I have always known. We sang about it in Sunday school. Jesus loves me. We don't deserve it, but we get it anyway. So I knew this. What I didn't know is that I could love to learn about Jesus. I could love to hear about his word, but most importantly, I could love Jesus back. I know that may sound like a strange concept for some of you people have already figured that out long before me, and that's awesome, but I realized 
sitting in that pew, surrounded by my family, with all that background there. That's what was missing, was I was able to love Jesus back. Thank you, Jen, for sharing that. Is that okay? Sorry, I thought you'd cut it out. <laughs> that was us. Um, Pastor Tracy and I were in the room when she did that, and that was us going, that was so amazing. We loved it so much. We don't have to edit anything. We'll just play the whole thing, which basically we, there's very little cut out of that. She did such a good job. If you want to watch the entire thing over again, it'll be on our Connecting Point page sometime this week. I'm not going to commit to a day because that seems hard right now, but it will be on there sometime this week. <laughs> Um, thank you, Jen, for doing that. Thank you um, to Julie and Leanna that also did this. It's not easy being recorded and putting your heart out there for people to watch and then knowing that later people can go back and watch it. So it's not easy, but it's so worth it because you are challenging people. You are helping them to grow uh, in their relationship with Jesus. And um, I loved our Seamless group. I'm so glad Jen joined. And this is... Um, this is going to sound like bragging, but I just want to be clear. It's not. Um, the Holy Spirit led me to invite Jen to that group. I, my group wasn't filling up, and I wasn't really sure. And, and I was like, that's all right. There's only like three or four of us. It doesn't matter. We'll have a great time. And I felt the Holy Spirit drop Jen's name into my heart. And I just took a minute, and I was obedient, and I sent an email. And then from that, I actually went and invited a whole bunch of other ladies. <laughs> and our group filled up. But it wasn't ever about filling up the group. It was about being obedient to the Holy Spirit and getting together so that we could learn about God's word. So thank you to Jen. Thank you to all my um, seamless ladies. It was a really great study. And if you are interested, I would lead it again anytime. It was an excellent, excellent study. So that's, that's all I have to say about that. We are going to continue in our series, So This Is Jesus. Pastor Tracy has spent the past few, past few weeks so in only the way that Pastor Tracy can, teaching so effectively and so well on who Jesus is, how he was surprising, how he was misunderstood, and how he is willing. I guess he is and was. We can interchange those. So today we're going to explore Jesus as fulfilling. Now, have you ever had the privilege of, uh, in your life of being the fulfillment of something? Think back. Think long and hard. I don't know that I, you know, you're the exact person at the exact moment at the exact right time. Does that ring any bells? I was having a hard time coming up. I don't know if I've ever been the fulfillment of anything exactly. Um, I thought perhaps maybe, oh, Matt, I was going to say that. Okay, you guys can't see this, but my husband raised his hand, and I actually wrote in here, maybe in a romantic comedy, I was the fulfillment of my husband's hopes and dreams for a wife, and, my, and Matt, like, raised his hand. So our marriage is alive and well, guys. It's alive and well. That's so great. So I have been the fulfillment of that. That just seems I love you so much. That seems kind of icky to share that out loud, but that's great. All right, so uh, maybe in that sense, or I, I did think, you know, when a, when a parents welcome their, a child into their family, for, that's often the fulfillment of their hopes and dreams for a family, so that child in that moment is a fulfillment. If you have a good example and you're on our live stream, you just drop that in. I'd love to hear it. I couldn't come up with very many. Um, also, I don't like to talk about myself, so... Well, no, that's not true. I do like to talk about myself. I don't like to talk about myself like bragging that I am the fulfillment of something, so that's hard for me. Anywho, I know who is the fulfillment, and that is Jesus. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah. The Jewish people had been waiting for their Messiah to come uh, for over 700 years. They had been told by leaders, prophets, their oral history, their written history, that a Messiah was coming, that God was not going to leave them where they were, but that he was going to send a king to save them. Jesus is the fulfillment of promise, of rescue, of salvation. And aside from Jesus, to my knowledge, uh, there is no one in human history, in the history of humanity, that has had a whole collection of books written about them before they were even born. I don't know of anyone. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies in his lifetime. 29 of them he fulfilled in a single day. And these prophecies came from different prophets, different uh, books of the Bible. They were spread out over hundreds of years. They uh, started back, I don't know if you know this, but the first and earliest reference to the Messiah comes in Genesis 3. You can go back and read that for yourself. It doesn't say Jesus specifically, but it talks about the, the crushing of Satan's head. And that is actually talking about the Messiah. In the moment that sin entered the world, the plan for the Messiah started. It fell into place and all of the things started connecting. From the beginning, from Genesis, the very beginning, we see the plan for the Messiah coming. Now, I love this sort of stuff. This is history. This is what I love. I love all these details. I love, I, we could spend all day and we could go through all 300 and that would be my joy, but I will not do that today. That just, I know that that wouldn't be everyone's joy and there are groceries to be picked up and naps to be had. So we are going to continue in our Isaiah study and we're going to read from Isaiah 53, 7 and 9 and we're going to look at a couple of those uh, prophecies that we see there. So let's read together. It's in your YouVersion app if you want to follow along, or if you brought your good old-fashioned paper Bible, you can read there. Starting at verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So we are reading from the book of Isaiah today. So let's just talk about Isaiah again. I just love all the details. I love all the history. So let's talk about who was giving this specific prophecy. So Isaiah was a prophet, obviously. His purpose was to call the nation of Judah back into relationship with God and to tell the nation that God's salvation was going to come through the coming Messiah. Now, if you're not familiar with the prophets, they were an Old Testament office, similar to that of a priest. And they were instituted during the days of Samuel, which Samuel was the last judge. So you want to do a really brief Old Testament overview that skips a whole bunch of things. We have Adam and Eve, okay? And then we have the fall and the sin and, and the flood and all of those things. And then we have Abraham, Isaac, Joseph. And then we have tribes. And then we have Moses. And we have coming out of slavery into freedom. And then we have Moses dying. And then we have Joshua. And we have other things. And then we have judges. And the judges ruled over and they help people keep the peace and make decisions and lead. This is such a brief overview. And from the judges, we find Samuel. And Samuel is actually the last judge. And he called the first king. So the people of Israel complained and didn't want judges anymore. They wanted a grand king. So God answered their prayers, even though he knew it was going to be a hot mess. And Samuel ordained Saul and then David, and then it goes on from there. And from there is where the prophets come in with the priests. That was really very brief, and I missed a lot of things. But you get the whole story, right? We got it. Yeah. You like that? I'm glad you like that. Yeah. 
So the role of the prophet was to speak for God. He was confronting people and leaders about um, things they were doing wrong, how they needed to turn back to God. They weren't popular. The prophets were not popular people uh, because they usually spent all their time correcting and disciplining and saying, if you don't turn around, here are going to be the consequences. And even though people often didn't listen, they faithfully kept declaring the messages. So Isaiah is, one of, is the first writing of the prophet in the Bible. He's often considered to be the greatest, uh, which is so good for him. You know, he's, I'm sure he's really glad we consider him that now. This portion of Isaiah is thought to have been written sometime in his later, later life, around 681 BC. And as a fun side note, they think that his wife was also a prophet. And I think that's so cool. They were like a little ministry team. It's so great. <laughs> Yeah? Okay. That's just me? That's fine. I also, I said that to Pastor Tracy, and she pointed out that it was probably a good thing, because prophets did a lot of crazy, weird things, and if his wife wasn't on the team, she would think he was out to lunch. So it was probably the Lord ordaining all of that together. So now that we're done with our little history lesson, uh, we can go back to Isaiah 53, and starting in verse 7, it says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Now, Pastor Tracy went into this verse a little bit last week, and we're not going to dig into all of the metaphor and meaning today. We're just going to look at the prophet. The prophecy. This prophecy is that the Messiah will not defend himself, that he will be silent before his accusers. And we know that Jesus fulfills this prophecy. He bore the punishment for sin, for things he did not do. He was accused, he faced his accusers, and he remained silent. The only time he spoke in his defense was when, if he was to remain silent, it would have contradicted claims about his death and resurrection. In those moments, he opened his mouth, but to defend himself, he remained silent. Matthew 27, 11 to 14, we can see the fulfillment of this prophecy. It says this, Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they were bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. He didn't defend himself. He knew that he was facing terrible uh, punishment. He was facing death. He knew what was coming his way. He knew he could have defended every single one of these. If anyone could have talked their way out of this situation, of course it was Jesus. But he didn't. He remained silent. Uh, we see passages in Mark and Luke, and they also continue to corroborate this, the f this story of the fulfillment of his prophecy. Jesus remained silent before his accusers. I don't know anyone else who could keep their mouth shut when they were, when they were faced with that. We place blame like a game of hot potato in our society. Like, let's pass it as fast as we can so that when the, the game stops, I'm not the one holding this blame. That's how we act in this world. But Jesus, the one who was blameless, remained silent and let all of the heaps of ridicule and blame and accusation sit on him because he knew it didn't matter, because he had the bigger picture, because he knew what was coming. Jesus fulfills the prophecy that the Messiah would be silent. We go on to Isaiah 53, verse 9. It says, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now, the commentators have really deep thoughts on all of this meaning. I'm just going to go real simple today. Uh, this prophecy speaks to the manner of his death and the way he lived his life. And Jesus fulfills this. Really simply, he was condemned to hang between two thieves. In his death, he was among the wicked. Jesus had no 
say in who he died beside. He had no say in the manner of his death. And yet in that moment of death, he stood and hung among the wicked. He, he hung between men that deserved that punishment as an innocent man. He was assigned a grave with them to die with wicked men. And with the rich, he would be in his death. Did you know that Jesus was buried in an extremely wealthy, well-to-do man's tomb? In Matthew 27, 57 to 60, we read, As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be taken to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a, stone, a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Jesus was buried in a place where only the wealthy were laid to rest. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man with status. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a person people knew. But he also loved Jesus quietly. He didn't declare his allegiance to Jesus very publicly, but inwardly he had decided to be a disciple of Jesus. And so he took Jesus' body, he wrapped it in expensive cloths, and he prepared it properly for burial and placed it in the place where the wealthy were laid to rest. Jesus really should have been laid in a potter's field. He had no earthly wealth. He had no claim to anything. He, he had no bank account and savings. He was the poorest of the poor. He relied on God for everything. So in that sense, he was the richest. But in earthly standards, he should have been placed with the poor, and instead, he was placed in a place of honor, and he was buried there. Not that he stayed there very long, but he was placed in a place of honor in his death. As we look at the historical record of Jesus' life, we see that he wasn't violent, as, this, as it is prophesied. Contrary to the accusations thrown at him, he didn't incite people to riot. He didn't particularly speak against the government. He wasn't telling everyone to throw off the shackles of the, of the government. He, he wasn't saying that. He wasn't teaching false doctrine, doctrine. He wasn't lying to them. He was pointing them to the truth. He was challenging them in their beliefs. He was asking them to look deeper and see what, why they were doing what they were doing. Why are you following these laws? Why are you so caught up in all of this legalism? He didn't, he didn't incite anyone to violence. He was never... He was not full of deceit, but he was truthful to a fault. Jesus was not guilty of what he was accused of. He was accused of blasphemy. He was accused of speaking against the Lord. He did not do those things. He was not guilty of what he was accused of. And we see in 1 Peter 1.22, it says uh, about Jesus, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus was above board, yet he did not speak against it. He was killed among the wicked and he incited no violence and no deceit was in him. Jesus fulfills the prophecies of what the Messiah would be. The third prophecy I want to look at today was chosen because of the appropriateness of the day. We are celebrating Palm Sunday. So let's look at the prophecy around Palm Sunday. Ooh, prom? No, Palm Sunday. <laughs> Otherwise known as the triumphal entry. So did you know that the events of prom, Palm Sunday were prophesied all the way back into the time of Zechariah? Um, it, Palm Sunday was more than just a day where Jesus happened to return and things went well and the people gathered. It was more than that. It was preordained, set back in the time of Zechariah. It was prophesied that this would take place in this exact way at this time. This is the return of Jesus into Jerusalem where we celebrate his triumphal return. Let's read the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
Now we know that we celebrate Palm Sunday today, and I have to tell you, can I tell you, I had a moment today. I had a COVID sadness moment, because if you've been at our church for any number of years, you will know that typically on Palm Sunday, we line this middle aisle with palm fronds. That's Pastor Tracy's word, palm fronds. And the kids come, and they grab them, and we sing a uh, Hosanna song, and they wave them, and kids get stabbed in the eye, and there's always crying. But it's just this joyous, uh, tell me, let me, in the comments or not, yes, you remember this. It's such a great moment, and I had a moment of sadness that we don't get to do that today. But then I remembered that last Sunday, I was, last Palm Sunday, I was sitting on my couch waving a Piper palm frond, so I will take this year being in the building. So I had a moment, and then I remembered that Jesus is still king, even if I can't wave my palm frond. So, <laughs> that's that. We see that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy about his triumphal return, and we see it, uh, we're gonna read the account of Matthew 21, 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and Jesus had, as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowd answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. So we know that Palm Sunday takes place one week before Jesus' resurrection, and it is the start of what many consider to be the Passion Week or Holy Week. It's, it's really, as we celebrate Lent in the lead-up, Palm Sunday is where we really start to rev up into our celebration of Easter. And when we look at this scripture, when they're saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they're actually quoting from Psalm 118, the words of Jesus, the prophecies about Jesus. The account of the triumphal entry is also found in Matthew, Luke, and John. It's in all four of the Gospels. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to just talk about teaching things for a minute because, again, I find it so fascinating. So we have the four Gospels, which are called the Synoptic Gospels, which, if you've never heard that before, the word synoptic simply means they are the same or from the similar point of view. So each of these four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell the similar story, similar point of view of Jesus, and they all tell the specific story of uh, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. But Matthew's account is the only one that talks about both the colt and the foal and the donkey, all of them together. Now, if you are in my seamless connecting point group, I, it is time for your final test. Pull out your pens and papers, and I would like you to answer why Matthew was the only one that uh, was so specific in the details. Like, I can see some of you, like, looking up to the ceiling thinking, do I know the answer to this? Okay, I'm just using. But we did actually learn this in our connecting point group. Each of the Gospels was written with a different audience in mind. They were all written with the same thing, but written to different audiences. And Matthew specifically wrote to the Jewish people. So it was important for him to get all of the details down to the last period correct so that the Jewish people that were looking for the fulfillment of this prophecy could see the fulfillment in its full. So it was important that Matthew wrote about the donkey and the foal because that is what the prophecy had said. It meant something to the Jewish people. It wouldn't have meant anything to the Gentiles that didn't know about this prophecy, that weren't looking for it, but to the Jewish people, 
Jesus fulfilling this down to the last detail meant something to them because Jesus was fulfilling their messianic prophecy. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies. Of over 300 prophecies, Jesus fulfills them all. 29 in a single day. Now, I wonder if there are any of you out there that are thinking about these prophecies and have an inner cynic whispering questions in your ear. Or if you've heard other people say things about these prophecies, and it's okay to question. It's okay to think this sounds outrageous. It does a little bit sound outrageous. In our human strength, this sounds outrageous. It's okay to have questions. But when you have questions, you have to dig down and find what the truth is. A lot of people today chalk everything up to chance. It's just chance. I needed this, and it happened to appear. It's just chance. It's fate. It was fated to be. There is no chance involved in Jesus being the fulfillment of the messianic prophets. It is not fate. It is not willed by the universe. There is nothing left to chance. Jesus planned this, and it is all part of his plan. Nobody could fulfill 300 prophecies just by chance. We've talked about this uh, proof before, but I'm going to mention it again because it still stands. Mathematics and astronomy professor Peter W. Stoner has made the statement that the chances of just eight, so remember there are actually 300, but just eight of prophecies like these of Jesus, the chance of them coming true by sheer chance is one in 10 to the 17th power. So that's one in 10 and 17 zeros. That's a lot of zeros. I'm not a math person at all, but I'm pretty sure that means it's highly unlikely. There was no chance involved. This was preordained, God working the details out to fulfill a promise he made in Genesis. He started working this out in Genesis to bring the fulfillment of Jesus as the Messiah. This uh, idea that it's chance is 1 in 10 to the 17th power would be the equivalent of covering the entire province of Ontario. So picture the province of Ontario, covering it in silver dollars. You know those silver dollars you get someday when you're allowed to go to an ocean beach? You can collect sea, sea dollars, sea, sand dollars, sand dollars, sand dollars. You can collect them. It would be covering the entire province of Ontario in sand dollars, one and a half feet deep, blindfolding someone, telling them to walk across and find the one sand dollar that you marked specially in their first chance, the first one they pick up. It's impossible. That is the odds that Jesus had in trying to fulfill just eight of these prophecies. And he fulfilled 300. I don't want to continue to put ideas in your head, but I think it's important to talk about the naysayers. So let's just address some of the elephants in the room. There are people out there that say many of the prophecies were fulfilled because they were done in Jesus' own power. He knew what was said about him, and so he worked out his own life to be the fulfillment. For example, there were prophecies about the time and the place and the, and the manner of his birth. So theoretically, Mary and Joseph could have gotten on that donkey and hightailed it to Bethlehem so that they could dupe an entire world into believing that their precious baby boy was going to be the Messiah. It's ludicrous. I don't know. I'm not Mary, but there is no way at eight or nine months pregnant you would have convinced me to get on a donkey and ride <laughs> over there for some long... That's the long game. That is the long game, and I don't think they were in it for the long game. The idea of manipulating events runs into a wall when you consider the sheer volume of prophecies Jesus fulfilled. And so many of them were outside of his control. He didn't control where he was born. He didn't control the manner of his death. He didn't control the people he was died beside. He didn't control where Joseph chose to bury him. He had no control over these things. They were prearranged and outside of his control. But the Lord God Almighty controls these things because he is the one that set Jesus up as the son of God to be the fulfillment of this prophecy. 
The devil, they say the devil is in the details, but I would suggest to you in this case, the truth is in the details. If you dig down and look deep, the truth that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messiah is in the details because he wasn't a human man. He was fully God. And so the manner of his death and his life fulfills these prophecies because he was meant to be the fulfillment. You can argue, and people do argue, that the Bible was skewed to show the fulfillment of prophecy. So Matthew wrote these things because he knew that they needed to be written in a certain way to show the proof. But I would ask you to remember today that the New Testament was written at a time of great turmoil in the church. They were facing death and persecution and hardship, and it was not to their benefit to try and uh, introduce a new religion. Their way, they were facing death and torture and just hardship, and in fact, their physical lives, the writers of this gospel, their physical lives would have been easier without any of this Jesus business, because what they were facing by telling the truth was worse than anything their life would have been without it. They had no, there was no plan, there was no glory for them in this. If they, were going to con, if they were going to deceive the Jewish people into tricking Jesus into being them into believing Jesus is the Messiah, they would have done it so differently. The Jewish people were looking for a king. They were looking for a political king to come and sit on the throne and free them from the, the tyranny they were under and let them worship the way they wanted to and wipe out everyone else from the face of the earth. They were looking for a powerful and political king. And what they got was a man who had nothing, who had nothing, who allowed himself to be taken to his death with no fight, with no um, word of protest. He, would, he looked weak in all of the human ways. They were looking for a king to save them politically, but God sent them the savior to save them spiritually. Jesus wasn't the king they were expecting, but he was exactly the king that we need, that they needed today and that we still, they needed then and that we still need today. And aside from all of the historical facts, you can't deny the power of the gospel that continues to spread, that has traveled across the world. In 2020, there were 2.382 billion people who identified their religion as Christian. Now, I don't want to have a discussion about Christians and Christians. It's not, I, we're not, we're not going to go there today. Let's just sit in that number, no matter where their heart is at. 2.382 billion people identify themselves as Christian. There are billions of followers of Christ all over this world. It is still the number one religion today, and it is still the fastest growing religion today. Over a span of over 2,000-ish years, people continue to experience Jesus. A man that was pretending to fulfill a role to gain some sort of political leverage doesn't last. Jesus stays. I experience Jesus in my own heart and life every single day the same way that the disciples experience Jesus in their own heart and life. You can argue facts until you're blue in the face. I hate arguing. I have no desire to do that. But if I had to, I would. And I would because Jesus is real to me. He is the same today as he was the day he rose again from death. The death, from death. Jesus is king. He is king of my heart. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is my savior. He is my savior. So why does it matter that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies? It's really great. If you like history, it's really fun to look back at the historical record of the Bible and see it all. But what does it really matter? It matters because it means Jesus is who he says he is. It matters because it means he is who I say that he is. 
It means he is more than a good man. He is more than a prophet. He is more than a religious teacher. It means he is God himself that allowed himself to die and rise again on my behalf. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, and an Oxford historian said this, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. You can fall at, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. <clears throat> Excuse me, he did not intend to. Jesus was not a prophet. He was not a good, he was a good man. But that's not all he was. He was not just a teacher. He was not just a prophet. He was not just a good man. He was and is the Messiah. He was and is the fulfillment of the prophecy that started in Genesis and made its way up until now. It means... Jesus being the fulfillment means that we are no longer condemned to live because live under our sins, but we have forgiveness and re reconciliation with Jesus. We are no longer under the old covenant, which we've talked about many times here before. So forgive me if this is redundant and forgive me if you don't fully understand it. I'm going to try and hit the middle here. Before Jesus, the only way to receive forgiveness was through priests and blood sacrifices. There was no way to meet with God face to face and live. It had to be done through a priest, and the presence of God was separated from the people. God dwelt in man-made dwellings. He dwelt in the tent of meeting. He dwelt in the temple that was built for him. And in each of those places, he was separated from the people. It's because even a glimpse, even a taste of his glory would have killed them outright because our sin was so great. And even with all the blood sacrifice, even with the stories they tell you when blood ran down the streets of the city because of the number of sacrifices, even with all of that bloodshed, even with all of that ritual and rule being followed, it was still wasn't enough for us to see God face to face. Even if we followed the law to the absolute letter and never deviated, even at that we still couldn't see God face to face because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messiah, prophesied Messiah, we can see God face to face because Jesus is the ultimate Messiah, our ultimate sacrifice. The blood sacrifices from the Old Testament stopped because Jesus fulfilled what they were pointing toward. Those sacrifices were always pointing toward Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus was the final, unrepeatable blood sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 9, 12 tells us, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. You don't need anyone else to go to Jesus on your behalf because Jesus fulfilled the prophecy, because he is who he says he is. The priesthood that had to stand between you and God is no longer required. You can approach God face to face wherever you find yourself because he is the Messiah. We meet God face to face. We don't have to have a priest uh, pray for us to get forgiveness of our sin. We don't have to do anything except for ask Jesus directly to pray to God ourselves. We can approach the throne of grace all on our own because Jesus is who he says he is. And when we approach that throne of grace, we find mercy, we find forgiveness, and we find new life. Jesus is our high priest forever. He is our mediator between us and God. He goes in the middle and stands between God and takes on our sin and our punishment. He is the reason that we have access and relationship with God. 
Hebrews 7, 23 to 24 says, Now there have been many of those priests since, prevented, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Because Jesus is the fulfillment, the physical temple ceased to be the geographic center of the world. At one time, the Jewish people had to come to a specific place to worship God. Christ himself, Jesus himself, is our center and place of worship. We don't have to go anywhere. There is no place, there is no tent of meeting, there is no temple where we have to go to meet God. You can meet God wherever you are. In the Old Testament, God dwelt in the Ark of the Covenant and the Tent of Meeting. He was on the mountain with Moses. He was in the temple built by Solomon and then rebuilt during the time of Nehemiah. There was always a place where God had to dwell, separated. There is no central location required. Do we understand how freeing that is? We meet Jesus wherever we are. On your walk outside when the sun is shining, when you're hiding from the rain and the cold, Jesus is there. He is with you. His presence is always available to you. There is no pilgrimage necessary to Mecca or Jerusalem or anywhere else. You find Jesus wherever you find yourself. John 4, 21, 23, to the woman at the well, uh, Jesus says this, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers, worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. That's us. That's us. John 2, 19, 21, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. But the temple he had spoken about was his body. Jesus is the temple. He is our center of worship. Matthew 18, 21, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be. Where we gather together, the presence of God rests and dwells. Wherever you are, follower of Jesus, you have access to the Father because Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophesied Messiah. Whether you're watching online or you're here in this building, let the weight and the privilege of that sit with you for a moment. Let's marvel at the fact that we have access to the holy, powerful, one triune God. Because Jesus died and rose again and was that fulfillment. If you're watching this today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I have amazing news for you today. You don't have to come to this building to get right with God. You don't have to uh, find a pastor to pray with you, although we would be happy to do that. If you want to get right with God, if you want to meet Jesus today, all you have to do is ask. Wherever you're watching today, you can enter a relationship with God in this exact moment by reaching out to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. My life has not been lived in a way that honors you. I have sinned. I have done things wrong. Forgive me. Come into my life, fill me with your presence, and I want to live my life for you. I'm turning away from who I was and walking into relationship with you. You can pray that prayer by yourself, or you could reach out to the church, and we would be happy to do that with you, but you are not required to, because Jesus is the fulfillment. A prayer from a sincere heart to Jesus is all you need to begin the greatest journey that will change your life forever. It doesn't stop with that prayer. That's just the start, but that prayer is the beginning. Jesus is the fulfillment, and he is fulfilling. He fulfills the need in our heart for God. This is cheesy. Bear with me. I'm going to say it anyways. In each and every one of us is a God-sized hole that can only be filled with a relationship with Jesus, and Jesus fulfills our need for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Jesus fulfills our need for a relationship with God. He is the fulfillment, and he is fulfilling.
We're going to take a few minutes as we close today, and we are going to worship and just sit in this moment that Jesus is the fulfillment, and he fulfills our need for relationship with God. Let's worship him today.